So this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. So if you want to open up the scripture to that passage, or it's going to be on the screen as well, and follow along. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and if and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For if the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases... The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought at a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 
So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is God's word for us today. All right, good morning, church. It's good to be gathered together this morning. Uh, and as you might have picked up, uh, we're going to talk about some stuff today. Well, it's good to be uh, together. We are uh, in this series called Untangling Jesus, exploring uh, how 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, how he is helping a young church uh, make sense of Jesus in the midst of a very confusing and often uh, disagreeable culture around him, that there are lots of uh, teachings about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and what does it look like to follow him in the day and age that they live. And so we are allowing uh, 1 Corinthians to lead us uh, to make sense of how do we follow Jesus today? Uh, Because one of the things that we find through this passage, through this chapter and through this book is that uh, a lot of the questions that they were asking then were asking today as well. Which is really helpful, I think, and, and one of the, the reasons why we hold to the authority of Scripture is because it has things to say to the questions that we're asking. And so, you know, I don't kind of sit in my office and kind of say, okay, what do I want to talk about? Like, what are the things that I'm really concerned about? As we allow 1 Corinthians to lead us, it opens up these conversations that are really important for us to have wherever we find ourselves. So that's what we're doing through this series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Now, we're in the middle of a series within a series, not to confuse you, but just kind of like, if you know that movie Inception, we're kind of in the second level of the dream, all right? Uh, But we're taking three weeks to talk about sexuality and relationships, uh, because Paul takes several chapters to talk about sexuality and relationships. And so two weeks ago, we talked broadly, kind of generally, about uh, how we think about our bodies and how we think about sexuality in light of that. Uh, And this week, we're going to talk about that in in terms of marriage, and then next week we're going to talk about that in terms of singleness. Now, as soon as I say that, uh, here's the caution. Uh, If you're single this morning, this message is for you. Uh, And next week, if you're married, you might think, great, it's time, it's a Sunday brunch, Sunday brunch Sunday, because it's a message on singleness. No, this passage is relevant to you. In fact, Paul's main focus in his teaching on singleness, and we're going to get into this next week, uh, it's not so much on, I'm young and I'm looking to marry, but, but what happens when you find yourself widowed? Or you find yourself divorced, or you find yourself alone? What do you do then? And so, uh, this message is both for marrieds and singles this morning, and next week is for both marrieds and singles this morning. So don't allow the fact that maybe you're like, I don't quite fit in that. Uh, Paul's teaching here is for all of us. Because maybe you're single here and, and you're thinking that marriage might be in your future. This message is, is going to be, I think, recalibrating for you to think about, okay, what should I be thinking about? Who should I be looking for? What should I be concerned about? Uh, and next week, as we talk about singleness, and it will be helpful for you who are married to think about, okay, how, how am I prioritizing my own life with Jesus? Right? And what happens right, when I find myself alone? How do I then follow him in that state? So wherever you find yourself this morning, this message is for you. So don't check out. Now, uh, I want to uh, re, uh, re oh, what's the word I'm trying to say? I almost said regurgitate, not regurgitate. <laughs> I want to repeat uh, this uh, definition that I offered two weeks ago. It's been two weeks, so my brain's a little fuzzy. Uh, about what Paul is laying out in terms of sexuality. And we use this term sexual stewardship. Uh, that Paul in chapter 6 of Corinthians, uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the very last thing that he says is he says, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And the idea of that is that uh, if you are a Christian, which means that you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in Jesus, you've given your life to him, he's now in the driver's seat. And so when I think about my body or I think about my relationships, uh, I'm not the first person who gets to call the shots. No, first and foremost, I have to ask, okay, what does Jesus have for me? And so that's this idea of sexual stewardship that we introduced two weeks ago. I've got a defini definition for you here on the screen. All right, sexual stewardship is aligning how I am physically, relationally, and sexually. We talked about all three of those are aspects of my body and my sexuality. Aligning how I am around who I am in Christ. That first and foremost, I am an image bearer of God, and if I know Christ, I have been made new by him. And so then as I think about the aspects of my life, the aspects of my body, the aspects of my sexuality, I align all of those things around my primary identity, which is in Jesus. And so everything else then uh, kind of gets shaped by him and what he says about me. And now Paul is going to apply that in the first part of chapter 7 to marriage. Uh, because when Paul is writing this, he doesn't get to the end of uh, chapter 6 and say, okay, good, now it's time for chapter 7. He's just writing. Someone else later on who is more organized than Paul said, okay, this is a good chapter break. And so they put a little 7 there. Maybe even yours has like a principles for marriage title. That's not Paul. That's someone else kind of organizing the Bible for us. And so his thought and his thinking from chapter 6, verse 20, where he says, you're not your own, you're bought with the price, continues then into the question of marriage. And so this morning, as we look at Paul's teaching, we're going to talk about three things. I want to talk about the priority of marriage, uh, the priority of marriage. Second, I want to talk about the place of sex within marriage, the place of sex within marriage, and then last, some practical wisdom for marriage. All right, so that's where we're going to go this morning. So first, let's talk about the priority of marriage. Now, when you look out around us, there's kind of two pictures, two competing images of marriage. Uh, one is that marriage is a paradise. And what I mean by this is, is every rom-com, or every, we're getting into like Hallmark movie season, and Hallmark movies end with a kiss, a ring, snow, and Santa, right? That's kind of how they end. And so romance and kind of marriage in particular is seen as this paradise, that I finally found the one that I'm looking for. Some of you are newlyweds. I did your wedding this summer. I did, I did six weddings this summer. Uh, it, was a very, it, was a, it was a summer full of love, right? And, and there's a sense in which, okay, I finally found the one that I'm looking for. And so we kind of picture marriage as like the, this paradise of self-fulfillment. On the other hand, in the same culture, you'll find that marriage is often pictured as a prison. That I have, like, the old ball and chain, right? That's something you used to, that's the culture you grew up in, right? The old ball and chain refers to your spouse. You think of marriage as a prison, that I'm locked in to this one person for life. And, and in the culture that we live in that's very uh, sexually free, uh, oftentimes it's seen as kind of uh, putting this chain or this fence around your sexual freedom. And so on the one hand, we have marriage as a paradise. On the other hand, we have marriage as a prison. And these are the attitudes and the thoughts that are swirling around us. And so how do we think about marriage? How do we think about the priority of marriage? Because maybe you grew up in a home and it was clear for your parents that, that marriage was a prison. You might have some stuff in your, in your heart and your mind and you're thinking about marriage. Uh, or maybe you're, you're here and you're single, and even in church spaces, we kind of picture or can hold up marriage as like, okay, you're married, you're finally like a full adult. And so you kind of look at that and you say, ah, 
I'm not sure that I'm there yet. But Paul's priority of marriage, he, he positions marriage in the order of priorities in a really important and really interesting way. So in your Bibles, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, I want to start actually in verse 17. Because Paul has a lot of teaching on marriage we're going to get to, but in verse 17, uh, he says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, Paul is saying something really interesting here. Because uh, in a culture that says, well, marriage is either paradise or it's a prison, no, he says marriage is actually a calling. That it's a, a calling that God places upon your life and into your life. In verse uh, 6 and 7, Paul says this, Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. You see, Paul is, is positioning and prioritizing marriage in a really unique way. He's saying the first thing that matters, the most important calling on your life, is to follow Jesus. Right? Remember, chapter 6, verse 20, heads up everything that Paul says here. So your first priority in your life is that you would know and follow Jesus. And that is true for you regardless of what position you find yourself in. Regardless of where you find yourself married or single, Paul uses uh, slavery and circumcision. He's not teaching on these things. He's using these as pictures of, of how wherever Jesus finds you and wherever you turn to Jesus, God wants to use you there. Right? And so this morning, wherever you find yourself married or single, the calling on your life is the same, and that calling is to know and to follow Jesus. Whatever else is true about your life, Whatever else is true about your situation, you're called to know Jesus. And then secondarily, as part of that calling, God then calls you into either singleness or marriage. Right? Which means that when we think about, okay, should I get married? Right? Should I stay single? Should I date? Should I not date? We'll talk about those things next week. But when it comes to those questions, the question isn't, okay, what feels right first and foremost? The question is, what is God calling me into? Marriage is a calling. Singleness is a calling. And Paul is clear that both of those things are a gift from God. Both of those things are something that God gives you. He brings you into a place in life in which you're either married or single. Which means that if you're single, you're no less human than if you're married. And if you're married, you're no less human than if you're single. And so marriage is, is subordinate to the calling that you have to follow Jesus. And then secondarily, it's, okay, do I follow him as a single or do I follow him as if I'm married? And you see, this is really important because I think oftentimes when we think about marriage, we think about, I need to find someone who will complete me. Even sometimes that's the language that we use. Like, I found this person who just completes me. They give me a sense of purpose. They give, the, the, the way that they look at me, the way that they talk about me, fills me up, makes me feel really, really good. But your spouse is not called to complete you. Your spouse is not called to save you. Your spouse is not called to, to make you whole. That is a work that only Jesus can do. And if you are in Christ, meaning you've turned from your sin and trusted in him, then he has begun that work in you, whether you are married or whether you are single. And so no person can complete you, only Christ can complete you. And that is true whatever position you find yourself in. And as you seek that work that he wants to do in you, then secondarily comes the question of the calling. 
And that calling into marriage or singleness is really this question of, is there somebody who complements the work that Christ is already doing in me? Somebody who comes alongside and is, is encouraging or, or helping or, or speaking into the way that Christ is calling me into wholeness. And then the question of the calling of marriage comes. Right, so you'll never find somebody who will complete you. You can only find someone who complements you in Christ. And that's really important to get because oftentimes our issues when we get into marriage is because we're looking for our spouse to do something for us that only Christ can do. And so as I seek to know him in the context of marriage, that's when wholeness comes. That's when health comes. And so the priority of marriage is only secondary to knowing Christ. And as I know him, then he calls me into a life lived in complement with someone else. And so to this then, Paul turns and he, he addresses the specific question that they're asking. And that is the question as it relates to sex. And so we're going to talk, talk about the place of sex within marriage. Now, a couple caveats. I'm not a counselor. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. And so I'm not going to try to do any of those things this morning. Uh, and also we're in mixed company. Uh, and so we're going to keep this uh, PG-10. Right, PG-10. Um, but if there are specific concerns or questions that you have, uh, there are resources that we can connect you to. There are people that we can connect you to who will do a better job at helping you unpack what that means for you. Uh, but we're going to look at Paul's teaching on sex within the context of marriage and draw out a couple of principles that I think will apply to all of us. Now, in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says that they've actually written to him with a specific concern. And the concern is this. Some are saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So some within the church are saying it's actually the, the better way or, or the holier way is to abstain from sex altogether, even if you're married. Now, if you remember in the context, in chapter 6, Paul was addressing the exact opposite attitude. In chapter 6, verse 12, some were saying all things are permissible. Everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anybody, as long as you don't harm anybody. Right? Sex is a thing to be enjoyed. On the other hand, now in chapter 7, Paul is saying that there are some of those in the church who are saying all sex is bad. And so on the one hand, everyone says all sex is good. On the other hand, all sex is bad. Now, if you think about that, on the one hand, our culture really is right now saying all sex is good, whatever it is. If it feels right, do it. But some of us grew up in religious contexts that treated sex as if all sex was bad. We don't talk about it. We keep it quiet. We talk around it. We don't talk specifically about it. And so Paul in this teaching is really kind of offering us a, a Christian perspective on what the role of sex is and how to, how to lean into it in following Jesus in this particular way. So there's just three things that I think Paul teaches us about how we should think about sex within marriage. The first is this, sex is reserved for covenant marriage. Uh, verse 2, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so Paul is clear that, that sex with it is intended to be reserved within the confines of covenant marriage. Right, chapter 6, people were saying, all sex is good. But Paul says, hold on a second, sex should be reserved within the context of of marriage. This chapter 7, verse 1, they were saying all sex is bad. No, Paul says sex is good within the context of covenant marriage. That is God's plan and purpose for the marriage covenant. 
And so sexual activity in the, the biblical teaching is reserved for a covenant union lifelong between a man and a woman. Now, two weeks ago, we, we talked about why that is. Because you might think, okay, why? What's the purpose of that? What's the point behind that? And as I want to remind us of a couple of things we talked about two weeks. If you weren't there, go back and listen to it. But, but two weeks ago, we talked about a couple of things. The first thing is that uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God creates humanity in his image. But as part of that image, he stamps us with either male or female. Uh, and this is rooted in the language. It's very clear that God's teaching and God's intention behind sexuality is that it exists in male and female. But at the end of chapter 2, when God institutes marriage, he brings the first man and the first woman together. He brings them together, and then the language says that the two shall become one flesh. Uh, it's an it's implication of sexual union, but even more than that, these two differently sexed people are now coming together, and in God's sight, they're one. And so to be an image bearer of God is to reflect something of who God is. And we talked about two weeks ago that Christians believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different and yet one. And so in the same way, marriage pictures this same God who is three in one with this two-in-one covenant union of male and female. And so God places this covenant union around it and says, this reflects something of who I am. The second thing we talked about two weeks ago is that, is that the marriage union between two differently sexed people has the potential to create life. And so God, who is himself a life giver and a life creator, gives that within the context of the very union that reflects who he is, and in doing so secures a family. And so the marriage covenant is part of God's plan and intention for what it means to create life. But lastly, this marriage covenant also protects the vulnerability and the intimacy of sexual union. In fact, right after that in Genesis 2, it says this, that the, the man and woman were naked and unashamed. And so the covenant union is intended to guard and protect that space of vulnerability. When you are with someone sexually, it is a very vulnerable, intimate kind of space. And so God places a covenant around it to, to protect and guard to protect and guard you and that person so that you can experience this intimacy without fear, without shame. And so God places all of this and says, this is reserved for this place. Pastor and author Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this. He says, sex is perhaps the most powerful uh, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of, your, of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. Now maybe you've never thought about it in those terms, right? Honey, it's time for covenant renewal service. Right? That's not romantic at all. But what he's saying is this. What he's saying is this. Whenever God instituted a covenant, he always gave a, a, a practice or a, or a symbol that would remind you of the covenant. And so what he's saying is this, is that sexual union within marriage is a reminder and a returning to that covenant. Right? Because it doesn't just happen with like a snap of a finger, like all of a sudden now. No, it, it requires coming back to the romance. 
It requires coming back to, to who that person is and cherishing who that person is. And so, and so sexual union reminds you and brings you back to that wedding day, reminds you and bring you, brings you back to, to who that person is in all their fullness. And so sex is reserved for that relationship. Secondly, sex is about giving, not taking. Sex is about giving, not taking. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What Paul is teaching here is radical equality in the sexual union of marriage. It was radical in that day, and I'd say it's even radical in our day. Because in that day, when a man got married, he often brought a woman into his household, and it was for some kind of benefit, right? to help take care of the house, to help take care of the kids. He would, he would marry, but, but the assumption of that culture was that he would find sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. But what does Paul say? Your responsibility, husbands, is to please your wife sexually. And your responsibility, wives, is to please your husband sexually. This would be, rat- like, you could kind of read it in verse Four, the wife does not have authority over her own body. All the, all the uh, traditional culture guys in that day would be like, yeah. But then Paul says, but you don't have rights over your body either. He says that when you come together as a married couple, you are invited and encouraged to give yourself to the other person. And so Paul's emphasis here is on, is on what you give to your spouse, not on what you can get from your spouse. Sexual union is about giving yourself willfully, consensually to someone because you love and cherish them. And that would have been a radical thought in Paul's day, and it's a radical thought in our day. And I think here we have to contend with the ways in which the sexualized nature of our world and and even pornography has shaped how we think about sex. Like for a lot of us, our first exposure to sexuality was pornographic material. And what is that primarily about? That is primarily about giving, or sorry, getting. Right? It's primarily about, I'm going to use this person or use this image or use this, this thing that I'm watching so that I can get my own pleasure. I don't care about their personhood. I don't care about their humanity. I don't care about what situation they're in. This is primarily for me to selfishly get what I want. And so this shapes our imagination about sexuality. This shapes our imagination about what sex is and what sex looks like. And then what happens is you get married or you find yourself with someone, and that is what you have taught, that is what you have saturated your mind and your imagination about. And you think, I need to get out of this. What can I get from her? How can I get him to give me what I want? And Paul says, no, you're called to give, which is you choosing in your heart, in your mind, to with your body give to your spouse. You see, this is why it's so important that we, we think about this because, like, after all, isn't that like the way of Jesus? Jesus, he shares, he gives, he doesn't take, he doesn't demand. And so I think this really should, should challenge us to think about, okay, what, what are my expectations of my spouse? Right? How am I communicating with my spouse? How am I open to my spouse? Lastly, sex is intended to be experienced and enjoyed regularly. Verse 5, Paul says this, Do not deprive one another, 
except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Paul's assumption or his, his communication here is that sex is a regular part of the marriage covenant. Now, he doesn't say how regular. He doesn't say in what kind of way is this regular. He just simply says that this is part of your covenant union together. And I think one of the important things to get here is that, is that implied in verse 5 is that you are openly communicating with your spouse. Right? Like, like you're talking about this. Say, hang on, honey, I need, I need time for prayer. Right? Now, that's not an excuse, but that, that's, you know, hang on, honey, I need time to work on my relationship with Jesus. Right? He's, saying, he's saying this, that you should be communicating about this. You see, over the past uh, couple of years, I've had the opportunity to work in premarital counseling with couples. Oftentimes, this is the hardest thing to talk about. Right? Of like, what are your expectations? What are your thoughts and feelings about sex in marriage? We can talk about finances all day. Look at, look at spreadsheets, right? We can talk about your family of origin all day, but when we talk about this, this gets really hard because we have a whole lot of messages that we've come to believe, a whole lot of barriers to talking openly about this, even probably some past pain or some past shame. See, uh, Dr. Kevin Lehman in his book, Sheet Music, he, he talks in chapter 2 of this book how all of us carry what he calls rule books. Uh, there are these kind of unconscious feelings and assumptions we have about sex, and, and they shape how we approach our spouse and how we think about sex within the context of marriage. Here's what he says. He says, Our rule books about sexual expression and marriage are shaped by our response to our childhood experiences, our upbringing, and our birth order. Rule books within families will usually have some similarities, but they will also have marked differences. Ultimately, your rule book is a very individual thing, and it governs virtually everything you do. The thing about rule books is that they're often unconscious. What he's saying is this, you learned about how you should feel and think about sex in your family of origin. You maybe had some past painful or shameful experiences sexually that you still carry within your body, within your mind, and your imagination. And if you don't explore these things on your own and allow Jesus to, to reveal some things and to open some things up, these things shape how you respond to your spouse. He goes on and, and he has four questions that you can ask. And uh, I thought about reading them, but I want to keep it PG-13. Uh, but if, if this is tapping into something for you, you're like, okay, I think there's something here that's becoming a barrier between me and my spouse. As we communicate about sex, as we shape our expectations around sex, uh, I can give you those four questions and you could talk about it over lunch. But what he's saying is that all of us carry this big, deep weight as it relates to sex. And I think the reality is, even as we talk about this, even, like, even if you're married, even if you've got a great marriage, there's probably some stuff that you could carry, shame, pain, guilt from your past, that you need to explore because it's becoming a barrier to you being open and honest with your spouse. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we mentioned this earlier, but in Genesis chapter 2, the goal for your marriage, what is the goal? Why would, why, would, why would we talk about this? Why is Paul concerned about this? What is the goal for your marriage? Is it just to be happy? In Genesis chapter 2, right after God creates marriage, he says this, they were both naked and unashamed. 
Now, it's a lot easier to be naked than it is to be unashamed. Right? Naked, take your clothes off. You're naked. But unashamed, what does it mean to be unashamed? It means that I'm not hiding. It means that, that I, you're, you're seeing me for who I am, like warts and all. You're seeing me for who I am. I'm not hiding behind layers of masks, of, uh, layers of, of manipulation. You're, you're seeing me for who I really am. You're, you're seeing me even in, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my being in progress. And oftentimes what happens is, is, is when we experience sin in the past or even sin in the present, particularly as it re- relates to sex, is that the enemy wants to come in and he just layers on shame. Shame doesn't get introduced until Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve take that first bite. It says they were ashamed, and what do they do? They cover themselves. But the purpose of your marriage is that you would be naked and unashamed with somebody else who is also naked and unashamed. But how do you get there? How do you get there? See, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says this, He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what he's saying is this. Don't look to your spouse to save you. Don't look to them to to fix you. No, what do you need to do? You need to look to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He founded your faith. He started, he called you to him. And not only that, what did he do? He is perfecting you in your faith. He is perfecting you to look like him. And and what did he do? He said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, whatever shame you carry, whatever sin or guilt you carry from, from past sexual experiences, It gave Christ joy to take that on himself so that you could experience freedom. So that your shame could be taken off of you. So that your sin could be lifted off of you. So so that you can stand before him naked and unashamed and in his grace to then stand before your spouse naked and unashamed. Why? Not because your spouse fulfills you, but because Christ has fulfilled you, forgiven you, and made you new. You see, this... This is the heart of what it means to be naked and unashamed. And that is God's heart and purpose for your marriage, is that you might together pursue him, look to him, and then begin to see and begin to experience how each one of you is is growing in, in being unashamed before him and then before your spouse. And you have the privilege, if you're married, to walk alongside someone And to complement that work as Christ is doing that. You see, this is the purpose for marriage. It's not for you to be happy all the time. It's for you to be made like Christ. And that happens only as you look to him. And as you allow him to lift the shame. And to carry the sin to the cross. So that you can stand before him and someone else. Forgiven and made new. So if you're here this morning and this whole thing is just, you just feel it. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to, you're trying to avoid eye contact with your spouse because you know you're going to talk about it afterwards. 
The only way that you will find fulfillment is in Christ. And then he invites you to, in the context of covenant marriage, seek him together. And so what does this mean then for you and I? I want to offer just some, what I'll call practical advice for marriage. Because one of the things that's interesting is, is in verses uh, 8 through 10, Paul is offering pastoral wisdom. Uh, he says in some of these situations, he says, this isn't the Lord, this is me. I'm, I'm as your pastor offering wisdom. And here's the thing, wisdom in the Bible is connecting the truths of God's command to the nuances of my life. Right, that I know that this is what God wants, this is God's teaching, this is God's template for life. Now, in the context of my life, how do I live that out? And how do I live in light of that? Now, I know there are some specifics here. He speaks to unmarrieds, he speaks to widows, he speaks to uh, those who are married together, and he speaks to those who are married with an unbelieving spouse. Uh, and I want to encourage you, if you have specific questions about that, that's why we have the Q&A session. Uh, and so if you were like, okay, what does this mean for me? Text it in, and, and we'll take some time next week to answer those questions. But this morning, I just want to offer some practical advice uh, if you're married this morning, wherever you find yourself. Uh, uh, how do we live into this? All right, so first is this. Work on your in own intimacy with Jesus. Work on your own intimacy with Jesus. You see, your marriage will only be as healthy together as each of you are individually. And so as you work on your own relationship with Jesus, as you seek to know him, as you seek to be open and unashamed before him, as you confess sins to him, as you seek him, as you spend time with him, he's going to start doing some stuff in you that's going to spill out into your marriage. Because you're only as good together as you are in knowing Jesus individually. So work on your own intimacy with him. Know him. Cherish him. Allow him to remove the sin and the shame that you carry so you can be open and unashamed with your spouse. Second, prioritize the emotional temperature of your marriage. Prioritize the emotional temperature of your marriage. What I mean by that is this. Uh, you might have a marriage that is very, very cold, which is we're paying the bills, we're raising the kids, we're staying above board. But it's like a business relationship. It'd be very cold. On the other hand, you might have a marriage that is very hot. Uh, and what I mean by hot is like all fights all the time. Right? It's, it's, it's intense. It's spilling over. It's just we're just at each other's throats all the time. We're fighting all the time. Uh, and both of those are symptoms of the same problem. And so what does it mean to work on the emotional temperature of your home? Right? In your home, your marriage should be warm. And what do I mean by warmth? Right? It's not lukewarm. It's warm. And, and so you're, you're able to have conflict but you're not spilling over into rage against each other. You're not cold just paying the bills and getting the business done. No, you're, you're, you're seeking each other. You're seeking to know each other. And so prioritizing the emotional temperature of your home is prioritizing your emotional understanding of each other. Because what Paul is saying here is your spiritual intimacy with Jesus and your emotional intimacy with your spouse will create sexual intimacy in your marriage. And chances are, most of us who are married, you, you can attest to that. But without spiritual intimacy or an emotional intimacy, sexual intimacy is probably not happening. So prioritize the spiritual and the emotional intimacy of your marriage. Lastly, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You might be here this morning and you're sitting next to your spouse, but you guys could not be further apart. 
It's okay to say you're not okay. It's okay to get help. Right? The worst thing that you could do is just smile and say everything's fine. Well, then Monday through Saturday, you're either too cold or too hot. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Nothing is so far gone that Christ cannot redeem it, that he cannot restore it. If Christ rose from the dead, then he can raise your marriage. If he rose from the dead, then he can free you from your sin. If he rose from the dead, then nothing is too far gone that Christ cannot use it. And what he invites us and asks us to do is simply bring it to him. And so wherever you find yourself this morning in your marriage, it is not so far gone that Christ cannot raise it up. I want to pray for you this morning. So if you would, just bow your heads for a second. God, in this space, I know that there are marriages that are all over the place. There are some folks here this morning that they could not be further from their spouse even though they're sitting right next to them. Christ, you took on our sin and our shame so that we can stand before you whole and complete. That we can confess our sins to you. We can name the stuff that's going on so that we can, we can be made new. So God, I pray for the marriages that are in this room this morning. For those who are at their wit's end. Would you raise up hope in them? God, that if the grave could not hold you down, then nothing can hold you back from working in the marriages in this room. God, I pray for the husbands in this room. I pray that you would break our hearts. You would tear down the walls in our hearts and our minds and our attitudes towards our spouse, towards our wives. God, for the wives in this room, would you open up their hearts, open up their minds, open up the communication channels in these marriages so that we could seek you together. And God, for the one who is here this morning who feels the burden and the weight of sin and shame, would you show them Jesus who endured all that with joy so that we could be made new. Father, we trust you're going to do work. Spirit, would you do that work in hearts and minds and marriages this morning? Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.